Hello, you're listening to the Thrive Podcast about how people are working with water, land and ecosystems to make a sustainable food future. One of the key events in the water calendar is World Water Week, held each year in Stockholm. Scientists from the CGIAR research program on water, land and ecosystems were there to share their work and thoughts on topics ranging from wetlands and food security to the forgotten role of water in large-scale investments in agricultural land. And hovering over almost all of the discussions was the question of climate change. Now, one of the things we can be really sure about climate change is that things are going to become more variable. Hotter and colder, wetter and drier. More extremes, more often. And for water, that means more floods and more droughts. So it's not just droughts, it's also floods, because variability means variable, that means too little and too much. That's Claudia Ringler, a team leader with the CGIR research program on waterland and ecosystems. She says that too much water needs the same level of attention as too little. I agree that more often we hear about the droughts, so the low water situation, especially when we talk about agricultural production, and we hear more about the flooding end of water variability when we talk about uh, property damage, uh, human losses, etc. So usually we use the different terms for different occurrences, but of course floods also damage crops and droughts also uh, adversely affect uh, cities, urban populations and people in general. The variability occurs on different timescales. There's variability from year to year, with wetter than average years and drier than average years. And that's particularly high in sub-Saharan Africa. Long term, that sort of variability can mean an extended drought, like the current drought in California. But there's also shorter term variability, excess rain that turns into a short term flood, for example, or a dry spell, when farmers might need to irrigate. Researchers are rightly focused on the long-term impacts of climate change. But Jeremy Bird, Director General of the International Water Management Institute, which leads the Water, Land and Ecosystems Research Program, says that poor farmers are not really concerned about climate change. Well, maybe clarify a little bit. I'm not saying that they are not concerned about the consequences of climate change, but it's not on the top of their agenda. I mean, I think they are often struggling with many other things. They are concerned about the consequences of climate change, I think, in the long term, but they also have more immediate concerns which they're dealing with because of their situation, that they're already struggling because of problems of access to resources, access, for example, to credit, uh, consequences of not having firm land tenure, which means that they uh, often miss out, and then the, the vagaries of the climate at the moment, which we're seeing, already floods, droughts, which are occurring even without the additional additionality of climate change, is putting them in a, in a difficult situation. But the point I was truly trying to, really trying to make was that unless you understand the, the concerns and the problems facing them in terms of the access to resources and access to opportunities, the consequences, for example, that sometimes agriculture is not really an, a very viable alternative. In the meantime, though, for many poor rural people, there's no alternative to agriculture. So how can research help them? The onset of the monsoon might be several weeks late. What do you do? You know, do you, is there advice to say, well, okay, in these situations you need to change to a shorter duration crop? 
If that advice is there, are those seeds available on the market? That kind of advice is clearly going to be helpful if, as Jeremy Bird says, the farmer can actually act on the advice by getting seeds for a different crop. A slightly different approach is to try and smooth out the variability. I mean, if you think a little bit sort of creatively out of the box, then, you know, you have significant amount of excess water in some places, and the, same, and the following season can be a drought. So can you take the peak off that flood, which can protect the downstream areas, some of the economic uh, infrastructure, urban infrastructure, and then store that peak water underground, which can then be used for um, uh, irrigation later on something we called underground taming of floods as a new initiative, which I think we have great promise. It sounds simple, but there's a lot to consider. If you want to deliberately let farmers' fields flood to recharge groundwater, will they get some sort of compensation? And how do you manage pumping the groundwater for extra irrigation when it's needed without wasting water? What you're trying to do is to manage risk, and the key difficulty with that is that there's always going to be uncertainty. So I think one of the key questions about certainty, from the point of view of when you're a farmer planting for a season, do you have some certainty that that you're going to get a return on that investment? And this is where insurance comes in. Now, over the years, crop insurance has started to, to, to extend into developing and emerging economies. But the insurance industry also has to have some certainty as well. And... Knowing when, knowing a farmer knowing when an insurance company is going to pay out on a policy also has to be clear. One thing that's worth remembering is that some variability is absolutely essential. Claudia Ringler. There are some people out there who say we do not want any variability. We want 100% stable supply 24 hours a day, and that's, for example, the domestic sector. But there are some ecosystem services that actually rely on changing uh, supplies in different seasons, also even different years. And An example is the flood pulse in the Mekong Delta. Those are natural variations. Imposing external changes in water availability can also change overall productivity. Manipulating how much water a plant gets and when can have a big impact. In rice, for example, paddies are traditionally kept flooded. I mean, the traditional way has been to flood it which suppresses weed growth, so the labor requirements are not so much, but it does require tremendous amounts of water. And so there's been a lot of work on what's been called alternate wetting and drying, which does actually reduce the amount of of water consumption required, Uh, also with uh, um, broadcasting rather than sort of transplanting rice can reduce the amount of water at the beginning of the season. And in some cases, in some contexts, it's very appropriate. In other cases where the paddy field, let's take in in the case of, say, in Laos or in Cambodia, where the paddy field is a source of many other benefits, not just the rice. So you have uh, aquatic aquatic, uh, benefits, fish, uh, snails, frogs, uh, which also add significantly to the the protein of the uh, nutrition of um, of the local population. To introduce alternate wetting and drying there would actually have negative impacts. So I think, as with all these different approaches, they're very, very context-specific, context of the location, context-specific to the, to the culture. This example, and lots of others, makes the point that it can be very difficult to see all the consequences of a quite simple change in something like water management. The ecosystem approach means looking at lots of possibilities. 
In India, for example, as the cost of solar panels has come down, many states are investing in solar electricity for water pumps. But the concern we have there is that, yes, although it reduces greenhouse gas emissions, it has the potential to over uh, to overdraw on the aquifer because while the sun is shining, the pumps are left on, there's no incentive for the farmers to, to be more efficient. So, as in Europe and other parts, can we uh, come up with a system which allows farmers to feed back some of the ele- excess electricity from that into the grid? And technolo- technologically, that's not a problem. Institutionally, it's a major problem because you have utility then having to deal with many, many individual uh, suppliers. A problem, but as it turns out, not an insurmountable problem. Creative part there was to develop a cooperative, which would be the interface between these two entities. And this then has actually provided farmers with an incentive to improve the water management and at the same time uh, have the benefit of, uh, of uh, greenhouse gas emission reduction and to start, you start seeing the groundwater starting to recover because the water is being used more efficiently. Investment in water management, in smoothing out some of the variability in different ways, could make an enormous difference to the sustainability of agriculture. One of the interesting points is that for all the talk about droughts and groundwater depletion, there's actually a huge unmet demand for irrigation. Claudia Ringler's team did an interesting experiment using a global economic model and asking what would happen if, by magic, there was a massive investment in infrastructure so that every farmer's needs for irrigation water could be met. The outcome was quite striking. So if we keep irrigated area constant at 2010 levels, the annual total estimated welfare benefit is 94 billion US dollar, and that is every year. The crucial point there is that the area of land being irrigated remains the same, but all of it receives all the water the crops need. And the $94 billion a year in benefits comes in three different ways. First, all that irrigation would massively increase agricultural production, which means lower prices, especially for staples. And that's good for everyone, Ringler says, even farmers, because they also usually buy food. Then there are extra benefits for farmers in some areas where water is particularly scarce because they would be able to grow and sell more. And finally, producers and consumers would be able to spend the money they saved as a result of cheaper food. Of course, there are complications. And you can say, yes, it's only the welfare benefit. What is the cost to get this investment? And do we actually want to, again, do we want to meet you know, every single demand of every single uh, irrigator? Because maybe a lot of them might irrigate in unsustainable conditions, etc. So probably not. So this is an upper estimate. Um, but you know, it just gives us the, the sheer scope uh, of the potential that is out there. And also it, it really shows us the real underinvestment and, and the huge irrigation water demand that is currently already not met. At the Stockholm meeting, Claudia Ringler shared the benefits predicted by the model with people from the World Bank and the Asian Development Bank and asked them, having seen the figures, how they might spend a hundred million imaginary dollars. 
To her surprise, they didn't say, oh, we need to invest in more big dams and irrigation schemes. What was very surprising is that the panelists want to really spend a lot of the money and the resources on capacity building, on developing a message that the end users, the governments, and also the farmers can understand. So rather than putting it all into infrastructure or all into new decision support systems, they want to develop the capacity for people to understand the complexity underlying and surrounding water variability. I think that was a very uh, interesting outcome and unexpected outcome for me. I think both did say infrastructure, obviously investment shouldn't be, uh, it's, it's still important, but they want to go beyond that. And I think that's a very useful and important message. Yeah. Jeremy Bird agrees. Spend the hundred million dollars on building the capacity of communities to respond. If you look at the people that are really affected by whether it's food price hikes, whether it's uh, the consequences of uh, highly fluctuating climate, it is the more marginalized sections of community. So I would like to see a lot more of the existing investments targeted towards those. And so it's not a question of, it's, it's more of using that funding to target and influence the way that other investments really are, 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 uh, are, are going to reach the poorest and the marginalized groups of society to improve their livelihoods, given the same levels of access that others have. Jeremy Bird, Director General of the International Water Management Institute, ending this report from World Water Week in Stockholm. Our thanks to him and to Claudia Ringler for sharing their thoughts. We'd welcome your thoughts too. Is Jeremy Bird right that poor farmers don't care about climate change, only about the consequences of climate change? And what about the model that says investing in irrigation could be worth $94 billion a year? Should we invest much more in irrigation? You can tweet us using the hashtag ThrivePodcast or visit the website at wle.cgiar.org slash thrive. The Thrive Podcast is produced by me, Jeremy Cherfus, for the Water, Land and Ecosystems Research Program of CGIAR. We'll be back soon with another report from Stockholm Water Week. Until then, thanks for listening and goodbye.